listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, I'm Mike Gaston, and uh, this is episode number 76. We're rocking it, kids. 76, welcome to 2021. This is the second episode of the year, and boy, am I feeling really good. Feeling really good about the year. Really upbeat, kids. Don't watch that news. Don't look, don't look to the left or right. Just keep your eyes on the path ahead. Guys, it's January 10th, 2021, and I've got a few things I'd like to cover today. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about is the British are coming, kids. The British are coming. That's right. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex have entered the podcasting racket. Right when I thought I was going to corner the market, right when I thought I had built my empire and I was ready, I had my armies ready to uh, <laughs> to commit insurrection <laughs> in the podcasting nation, to take over, as it were. Uh, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex entered the podcasting game. Now, you may know them by a different name. You may know them by Harry and Meghan. That's right. It's the Markles, kids. The Markles are in the podcasting racket. They uh, launched a podcast a few weeks ago. They had an episode out. Uh, they're on They're on Spotify, funny enough. And the, and the um, podcast is called the Archwell, Archwell Podcast, you say yes. And uh, it, it's Harry, who is a royal, and Megan, who is a, I think they call that a hanger on. I'm not sure. Oh, no, it's his wife. I apologize. <laughs> they, uh, they of great wokeness started a podcast. Not surprising. I mean, Megan comes from the media world, and they are a young, woke couple. They clearly understand that they have a voice, they have a platform, and they're going to use it uh, for, for their, their progressive vision for the world. Uh, it's quite fascinating. I, I think someone needs to do a doctoral dissertation on, on, uh, on Harry and Megan. In this whole situation, I, I think about what monarchy used to mean. I mean, back before any of our time here, uh, as listeners and me as a broadcaster, monarchy, like the, the rights of kings, I mean, the, the kind of sovereignty that was bestowed by God upon a monarch, the authority that they had and so on, and what they represented. Uh, <laughs> now you've got, you've got an heir to the throne that's got a podcast. I mean, it's just so funny. I don't know if that further delegitimizes podcasting. You know, the old joke, it's like uh, everybody's got a podcast these days. But, um, or does it help legitimize it? Now that they're in the game, does it make podcasting more legit? Now, podcasting over the last handful of years has become more of a mainstream uh, media for consumption. But it's just interesting to see the royalty, the, you know, the, is it the House of Stewart? I'm not sure. Is this House of Stewart? I can't remember. Anyway, see them get into the podcasting racket. So, yeah, so Archwell, they started a foundation a while ago called Archwell Foundation, uh, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. And the whole idea is that they would be able to get into things that they cared about. They'd be able to, you know, promote ideas and uh, facilitate dialogue and, and, and probably use a little bit of their connection and muscle to help, you know, move platforms and, and movements and, and so on forward. A very, very liberal, obviously very progressive, you know, Harry and Meghan falling afoul of the queen, you know, rejecting, oh, we, we don't, we're rejecting our royal status. We're not interested in the patriarchy. We're not interested in authority and monarchy and all that. That's, that's old school oppression. We're very young and woke and, you know, whatever. So they put a podcast episode out. Uh, it's on Spotify. Spotify is making a big deal of it and they should. 
I mean, the real news is that Spotify is is working very hard and has been all through the last couple of years to position themselves to really own podcasting. Spotify wants to own that that space and turn it into something quite unique. They want to wrest it away from Apple and some of the other platforms that have a finger in the pie. And, you know, hey, uh, fantastic. I, I'm not big to see this become so commercialized that, that podcasters uh, starting out, you know, folks just knew can't find a voice. But you know, the fact of the matter is you can always put a podcast up. It's an audio file. I mean, you, you know, you don't have to be on Spotify to put an audio file up, but it does uh, further commercialize the whole racket. So very interesting to see uh, Harry and Megan. I gave a listen to that first episode and essentially it was just them. Uh, there was an open, they did a little bit of a read between the two of them. You know, they kind of did this call and response. It didn't, it did not have, uh, the flavor or, um, style of say a Southern black church call and response style back and forth, but it was more of a call and response. Like Megan would read a few lines and Harry would kind of respond with a few lines and back and forth. It was very equitable, uh, very egalitarian, egalitarian, excuse me for you, uh, pronunciation police out there. Love you guys. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> Very egalitarian. They did that for a few minutes, essentially kind of setting up this uh, sense or feeling uh, up for the brand, I think, and the experience. And then they jumped into, they said, hey, we want to we wanna hear from a bunch of people uh, that experienced 2020. And it was a really a look back at the year. And I think what they, t- they did is they took these pre-recorded um, segments, these commentaries from various people you know, different artists and thoughtful people and, you know, the wokerati and um, had them, you know, what was difficult for me this year and so on. And so what they did is then they set that they nice edit to music. It was very highly produced. I mean, very nicely done, very professional, very appropriate. You know, if you go to the Archwell website, archwell.com, A-R-C-H to the E, W-E-L-L.com, you go to the website, very well done. The branding's on point for someone that's a royal. And, uh, you know, I just think you look at this, it's like just less is more. And I think that the initial podcast episode was really well done from a production standpoint. Now they're saying on their website, if you go to archwell.com, you can go over to Archwell Audio. They've got the Archwell Foundation, they've got Archwell Productions, and they've got Archwell Audio. And, you know, they're putting together these various media platforms, if you will, or properties, maybe properties is the right way to say it. Uh, and, and they're developing content. I mean, if you think about the power of content, content is just mind blowing the value of content. It, it's always been valuable. You go back a hundred years, writing a book was a big deal. A lot of times folks would actually run for president to help promote their book deal. You know, they might have some kind of book going on and they run for president. I mean, this is something that would happen in the last 30, 40 years, but, you know, getting that gig would help them drive book sales. It was not about winning the presidency. And I was even a little skeptical at the beginning of the 2015, 2016 presidential race. I thought, oh, Trump is just in this for the publicity. It's a publicity stunt. He did this, he ran last time. He didn't get very far. He didn't expect to. And uh, at a certain point, I realized, well, hold on a second. I think he's playing for keeps. <laughs> I think he's trying to win this thing. But initially, I just wrote him off as one of these guys who had jumped in to get some publicity, maybe pimp a book, maybe pimp a property of his or something, maybe some upcoming TV show at some point, but just to get his mug, you know, in the spotlight, get that kind of uh, brand recognition out there. Well, well boy, was I, 
was I wrong? But Archwell Audio is a podcast. That's the name of the podcast. It shows up exclusively on Spotify. It's not showing up anywhere else. But they also talk about having production capabilities that they're going to help other people produce podcasts. And I think what they're saying is we really want to help people find their voice. People's uh, people who have voices that need to be heard. And again, this goes back to their position as being really woke. So kind of interesting. I think we'd like to keep an eye on this one. Um, I think there's there's a deeper story here to unpack, and I don't have it right now, but I think there's a deeper story to unpack when it comes to people like uh, Harry and Megan and, and why they're going to media. Why are they going to these kinds of platforms why are they choosing them uh, to put their energy into? Now, look, these are very uh, wealthy is not the word. These are very powerful, very wealthy, very resourced people. Um, so they've got access to resources. I don't imagine that this is a full time gig for them. And it's the two of them in their you know, jammies uh, working from home trying to figure out how to make rent by hustling podcast advertising. I don't I don't think that's the case. I, I don't think anybody does. But um, it is interesting that when they when you think about their brand and you think about their, you know, their positioning in, in society and the public's mind, the fact that they're anchoring a lot of that around content creation uh, is quite interesting. And it'll be curious. Uh, I'll be curious to see where they take it. I, you know, I'm very skeptical because I'm not big on the whole woke you know, mentality, the progressive mentality. I think, I think it's just, it's cancerous. It's, it, it latches itself onto existing institutions and existing ideas that have been created in, in society for generations, conservative ideas. And it just sucks the life. It metastasizes, sucks the life out of them. And I think this is an example of that. You know, you've got someone that comes from the lineage of royalty and you can trace the, his, his family's house, the lineage back. And there's some argument about, uh, not their legitimacy, but you know, they, they haven't been, uh, that, that their house has not been in, in control of England for thousands of years kinds of thing. But regardless, you've got the Stuarts and I believe it's the Stuarts, gosh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got them and you've got this son who this, you know, is an heir to the throne. Who's kind of embracing an ideology that goes directly against what his family is and came from. The monarchy, monarchy itself is a very conservative concept. And in fact, for most Christians, and American Christians struggle with this, they don't think of it because they think, well, it's all about democracy, Mike. I mean, that's God's chosen government is democracy because God bless America. The fact is, if you think about what do we refer to God as, we go, you know, oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Dear Lord, well, what is the Lord? Thou art my king. Thou art my master. Thou art the sovereign. You know, like... This is all the language of monarchy, kids. Christ is king. He'll sit on a throne. He'll rule. You know, like his kingdom is coming. Like all this kind of language is totally, totally, totally conservative. This is monarchy, kids. But you look at what Harry and Meghan stand for, and they are the antithesis of monarchy. They are, antith they are the antithesis of conservatism. So branding-wise, Archwell and Archwell Audio, kind of cool. I think they're doing a nice job there. Uh, the podcast itself, highly produced, well done. I think there's a nice balance between Harry and, and Megan kind of opening it up. Or maybe I should be saying Megan and Harry because we don't want to give Harry his, uh, his uh, too much ado there as a, as a male. But 
well done. Not too much of them. It's not all about them. They're highlighting other voices. There's something kind of pleasant about it. I got to admit, I hate to admit it, but I got to admit, but, but there's an underlying ideology that I just really question. So I'm kind of curious to see where they take this. Can they keep it above the fray? Can they keep it regal on a certain level so that they're not um, sullying the concept of them being the Duke and Duchess, the Duke, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, or are they going to find themselves sucked into the, the, the mud pit that is progressivism? You know, are they going to get right down there on the level of AOC, just sniping at people and criticizing them and telling them how it should be, be really fascinating because at some point, for progressivism to work, it's got to tear down the things that are in its way. So first of all, you're going to tear yourself down. You are monarchy. I mean, you made this big show of saying I'm, you know, re rejecting my birthright, etc. Well, you're still calling yourself the Duke and Duchess. So I guess that didn't really happen. And then on top of that, the way that you've positioned and branded Archwell, it's very, it's very regal. Uh, take a look. It's just, it's just got that really classy, love it, really well done. Where are you going with that? I'd just be really interesting to see. And, and if you're going to get down into the mud to fight it out, well, that's not very regal, is it? So I'd be curious to see where this goes. So anyway, put your uh, put a pin in it. Keep your mind on that. But I wanted to bring that up. I thought it was really interesting. And I'm a little concerned for my show. You know, I was just about to take over and I've got to deal with the monarchy entering the podcast racket. So say a prayer for Brother Mike and uh, lend a hand if you can. I'm looking for help. <laughs> Now, on the other side, you know, we, we here in America, we had a little problem with the monarchy. We ended up having a little a family squabble, as it were, and we politely asked them to leave. Please vacate the premises. Out of that, uh, you know, handful of states, we got federalism and so on. And that brings us to our next topic, which is the CIA, America's Central Intelligence Agency, kids. This, this is like, this is the wet work, the dark arts, the CIA, the things, the thing that movies are made of. The CIA rebranded recently. Did you see that in the news? The CIA rebranded. This is it kind of. It's always interesting to me when some massive government agency uh, does a rebrand. Often it's disappointing. It's often like, "Are you kidding me? This is so conservative and boring. You guys didn't take any risks. You're not doing. This isn't news. This is like boring." Really fascinating stuff, and, and they got dragged on social media pretty hard for it, and rightfully so. They kind of came out with this. Uh, it almost looks like, it almost looks like, like album art for some industrial uh, electronic EDM music or something. It's all black, and it's got this these really fine wavy lines that that kind of make an outline of something. This almost like a computer computer scanned object of, of electronic wavy lines in the background, very fine, you know, CIA and big white letters against this black circle. So it's just black and white. And it, the, people really tease them. You know, they, it just looks like it should be album art for some, you know, <laughs> some album put together by a guy named Dieter. But uh, their argument is that, hey, we want to be more interesting to diverse uh, prospects. We want to bring in younger, more diverse employees, new hires, and so on. We want to grow the team. We want to get away from this uh, old boys club and make the organization a little bit more uh, like the complexion of the country. By the way, I'm drinking an old-fashioned right now. If you hear me pause once in a while, or maybe it sounds like I'm swallowing something, I made myself a little old-fashioned before the... Uh, start of the show. It is afternoon here uh, on this Sunday. 
this lovely Sunday, and I thought I would just enjoy myself a tiny bit, a tiny bit before we get back to the grindstone tomorrow. But the thing I want to talk about with the CIA logo that, that I find just kind of, I don't know, weird. Uh, and you know me, I love to pick a part of a good branding project. And I will often give credit where credit is due, but sometimes I got to hold things accountable. So a few things. The first thing about this logo I do question, it, it has no tie-in to the United States of America whatsoever. There's no visual cue. There's no typography. There's no color. There's no physical uh, emblems or graphics that would tie it in any way to the USA. It's just a sans serif CIA type on a black circle with strange kind of electronic thin lines in the background. So it, it, on, you know, this is like a critical arm of the United States. It's, it's, it's an international intelligence gathering agency. It's the spy network. It's the one that lets us know when so, you know, some bad rogue state is building a bomb or when some uh, group is going to try to, you know, nuke the, the embassy or just crazy stuff like that. And it exerts uh, our, our uh, imperial will across the world. We, you know, we can talk about imperialism. That's a whole nother podcast for you. But that aside, I mean, the CIA is a huge part of the American government, especially when it comes to international influence and its ability to gather intelligence and data on what's going on in the world around us. And so it's just weird to me that the organization that is a critical component of this, the country would completely divorce itself uh, visually from the country that it's a part of. It's, it's almost like it's the standalone entity. You know, coming off of the last four years where there was this friction, we'll say, between uh, the United States uh, president and his administration, the executive branch of the country and the CIA and the FBI, it's just a little odd to me. It's almost like, hey, uh, it's like this teenager that's embarrassed by his parents. And he's like, look, we can go to the movies together. But when we pull up, what I want you to do is I want you to drop me off away from the door. I don't want anybody to see that I'm with you. And then I'm going to walk in on my own and you guys walk in on your own. And then we're going to just sit in different parts of the theater. But dad, can you please pay for my ticket? It's like, this weird, embarrassed, I don't want to be associated with you. Please don't kiss me. Please drop me off a little block away from school. I don't want to be seen with you. And what's kind of weird about that, I mean, just on its own, it's strange. But what's weird about that is something like the CIA needs to be tied closely to the government that it is supposedly serving. You know, you hear about intelligence agencies going rogue. There's been lots of questions about the CIA and some of the things that it's been doing. And have these been counter to the interests of the American people? Have they been counter to the interests of the leadership that has been duly elected or sometimes unduly elected? I mean, it's just a weird kind of statement. And I don't know if they meant to make that statement, but, but there's this... Complete disconnection. Now, there used to be the old logo was blue. It was, it was it looked a little dated. It was, you know, American blue. I uh, had a shield with a little bit of an eagle's head at the top of the shield. Okay, you go, that's America. You get it. I'm not asking them to, to be kind of cliche, tacky America, but it's just weird to see a very powerful, clandestine, and often unaccountable uh, organization rebrand itself in a way that says we're really not part of America. It's what it says. Whether they meant to or not is up for discussion, but that is what it communicates. The other thing that I want to point out, yes, it does have that feeling of an EDM uh, electronic dance music album, 
But I want to point out the fact that it's it's uh, two more things. One, that, that the color, like this very black and white, it's very ominous. It's very sinister feeling. And, and again, that's strange to me. I, I, I question, like, what is it that you're trying to say? So first of all, you're unmoored from anything that would keep you accountable. You're not, you're not having any attachment, any association with the umbrella that you're supposed to fall under and the people that you're supposed to serve. And on another level, this kind of really black with these kind of ominous, strange, electronic, digitally com- com- computerized lines and this big, bold, you know, white CIA, you seem scary. Now, I don't look at this and feel scared. Don't get me wrong, kids. It takes a lot to scare Uncle Mike. But what I mean is it just got this kind of ominous, sinister feel to it. Uh, it it's strange to me. I, it, it's not sleek. It's not hip and cool. It's, it's almost ominous. And I just, again, I'm questioning, like, what is it you're trying to say? And then tied to that, and the last point I'll make here is that it, it's almost like it's trying too hard to be, to, to be a parody of itself, a pastiche, if you will. It's, it's like it, it looked at all the hip movies, the action thrillers. It looked at popular culture and what are ideas of these uh, intelligence gathering, intelligence agencies, these clandestine agencies and clandestine arms of governments look like and are all about. It's almost like a comic book hero, action movie, uh, hip, cool thing. Let's make it sinister. Let's make it mysterious. Let's make it kind of almost paragovernmental, like it's its own rogue thing with its secret assassins and so on. It's almost like they try to make it cool so that they could then attract younger people. So let's get young people in here and we're going to rebrand to help our hiring process. That's kind of what it feels like. They're not rebranding to help the public understand them better. They're not rebranding to communicate core values or create an expectation. Remember, branding is about what promise are you making? It seems to me the rebranding for the hiring effort, which is really weird. Like, how hard is it to get people to join the CIA? Is it that difficult? Now, my suspicion is it's easy to get people to join, but they're having a hard time finding certain kinds of people to join. And I question that. You're going to rebrand the agency and make this huge statement about being not attached to America. It's almost like you're ashamed of America and we're actually a little sinister. Like, if you don't identify with this country and you actually want to be in a position where you can abuse your power and assert yourself then hell, we got a job for you here at the CIA. Look at our logo. Look at our brand. It's really weird to me. So I guess I have, I don't know. I've got a couple of questions. First, I'd like to know who at the CIA was responsible for this. I'd love to see the design brief. <laughs> I'd love to see the design brief. Like what was the goal of this rebranding? And lastly, who did they hire to do it? Was this done in-house? Uh, was this done by somebody, uh, a, a big branding agency? I haven't seen any news on that. It made a lot of noise. But I never saw anybody taking credit for it, so I'd be just kind of curious about that. So, yeah, the CIA logo. Check it out if you haven't seen it, and let me know what you think. Um, it's a little dubious. I just think that it's 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 bad strategy for me. I, I It just it communicates to me that either the CIA itself was going... <laughs> Is going rogue, and they're trying to let us know in their logo, which I don't think is the case. I think it, it shows a lack of leadership, that somebody was given a bit of freedom that should not have had it. They've come up with a solution that, that kind of looks cool, but I think it falls short as a mature, thoughtful brand. 
And kind of interesting, you know, in the last segment, I talked about Harry and, and Megan, and I gave them compliment. Like, I, I don't agree with what they believe in. I question the wisdom of uh, embracing, you know, progressivism and, and, and wokeism when you're, uh, when you, when you come from the, the long line of monarchy in the world. That said, I said, Hey, the, at the, uh, what's it called? Archwell brand, really well done, really well done. And they're on point. I think the, the work that they're putting out there so far is on point. Then I'm looking over here at the CIA and I'm like, what the heck are you guys thinking? This is bad. Uh, and you might say, well, Mike, you're reading too much into it. Well, that's branding, kids. You you got to think about these things when you put together your brand and you put something out there because you are communicating. You're creating perceptions. You are creating expectations in the market. And it needs to be aligned with who you are and, and what you're all about. So, yeah, check it out. I'd be curious to know what you think. All right, next I'd like to talk about <laughs> what happened on January 6th. And we had to bury it deep in the show so that I don't get canceled for saying anything wrong. Not really. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, I want to talk a little bit about QAnon Shaman. QAnon Shaman. Maybe you have seen the photos. It's this guy. He's shirtless. He's got long pants on. He's shirtless. He's kind of tattooed on his chest. And he's wearing this uh, American Indian style uh, fur kind of headdress cape effort with horns on it. It's like a buffalo bison horn headdress thing. I don't know what you call it. Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've studied any of that kind of stuff. It was seventh grade uh, social studies, maybe, that we did the uh, New York State, the different, the seven nations of uh, New York State. So I, I don't know. But this guy calls himself QAnon Shaman. As far as I know, he's not Native American. I think he's uh, a Trump guy. Well, I know he's a Trump guy, and um, there are photos of him, you know, as they breached the Capitol and they got into, I was at the Senate floor, I want to say. There are photos of him in Pelosi's office. There are photos of him on the Senate floor standing behind uh, the Speaker's desk, which at this point is Nancy Pelosi's desk, and uh, bullhorn and, you know, a spear with the American flag on it and so on, and kind of aping and mugging for the camera. It, what I found very interesting about all this, um, and it kind of ties into something that I've been thinking about over the last handful of weeks as the Trump presidency comes to a close. And yes, kids, I do believe it's coming to a close. Now, if I'm proven wrong, fine, I'm proven wrong. I, I don't have a vested interest in it coming to a close, but I just am not one of these people that thinks that somehow <laughs> magically he's going to come riding in on a white horse. Uh, I had a good friend I won't say his name just uh, uh, to protect his identity, but he said to me yesterday, actually, um, I just don't think Trump stuck the landing <laughs> in reference to the six and the way things have been winding up. And I, I agree 100%. But there was something really interesting about this whole QAnon shaman in this group that got into the Capitol building, this phenomenon. Now, that, that I think is illustrative. It's, it's almost an analogy for an element of the Trump presidency. Now, I've been a a supporter of Trump. I, I didn't like him when he first was in the mix for the Republicans. He was not my guy. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> embarrassed to say I initially liked Marco Rubio. Then I kind of shifted over to, um, to what's his name there from Texas. Uh, I can't think of it. I could see his face. I don't know why I'm going blank. I always do this on the podcast when I need a piece of information. It just does not come to me. Um, but Senator from Texas there, you'll know who I'm talking about, the constitutionalist with the kind of nasally voice, a nice guy and everything. But I, I, I was supporting him. But when it was Trump, I got on board. I'm like, look, I'm a Republican. I'm not voting for Hillary. 
I voted for him and I gave him a, a shot, just like I gave Obama a shot when he became president. Hey, I want the best. I want you to win. I want you to do a good job for the country. So, uh, so I was supportive on that level. And I feel like on a number of levels, he did a good job. He did a bunch of things that I, that I thought were good. And a lot of things that he was criticized on, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, some like the DACA ruling or pulling us out of the Paris Accord or some of that stuff. It's like, hey, look, this is what happens. You know, he's, an, he's the executive of an administration. They have a political view. They're going to enforce it. And the whole DACA thing, for instance, I didn't view that as him being hostile to immigrants or the children of immigrants. I saw that as him saying, look, that was an executive order. The executive order from the previous administration did not fix the problem on a deeper level. It just kicked the can down the street, down the road. By revoking DACA, uh, I interpreted the president saying to Congress, you guys need to sort this out. We're not just going to do it by executive edict. It, we got to have something on the laws from the lawmakers of this nation that can stand. And I, that's how I in, interpreted his, his desire to revoke DACA, Obama's DACA edict. You know, people went crazy, he's a racist and so on. So I, I just didn't buy into all that stuff. That said, I've had no problem criticizing the president where appropriate. I didn't like, I, I understood kind of the pugilistic position of, of the president. I understood his pugilistic stance. I understood how things are becoming more crass, more common, and, and you, you got to get down the mud to fight. Even so, I thought oftentimes he shot himself and he hurt us, you know, shot himself in the foot and hurt us by being ugly on Twitter, by being antagonistic. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, confuse or to, you know, do things to rattle your opponent. I get that. But to be ugly, to gloat, to make threats, uh, you know, somebody doesn't do what he wants, immediately this person needs to be court-martialed. I mean, I, I'm exaggerating, but like that's the kind of stuff that came out of this guy's Twitter account, his mouth, on a regular basis. It's unpresidential. It's undignified. And uh, I think that he... He made the office of the president a little bit more tawdry. I think the Obama administration did the same. I think the Clinton administration did the same in different ways. But they brought the kind of grandeur and the solemnity. I don't know. Is that a word? Solemn. Uh, the seriousness of, that's probably a better word. <laughs> Sometimes I'm too clever for my own good and, I, and, I'm, and I'm an idiot. So uh, the seriousness of the, of the office, the weight of the office, the, you know, the decorum that should come with it, you know, that went out the window. And that's been degrading as our culture degrades. You know, uh, Clinton, for various reasons, you know, he was out there jogging in sweatpants, Bubba, eating his, eating his McDonald's and playing saxophone. Okay, I mean, there's no harm in that. It's just, you know, he doesn't come across as a person of substance. He comes across as a, as a man of the people. And, and often politicians want to have a common touch. Obama bringing in, you know, rappers and media personalities into the White House, kind of that swagger and hip hoppy feel. You might say, well, Mike, you're just being racist. You know, what if it was jazz musicians and so on? But my point being, it was all about pop culture, often with the Obamas. And, you know, did that degrade the presidency? No, but it just kind of aligned it with popular culture, pop culture. It didn't align it with uh, the finer elements of our culture. Okay, whatever. But I see a constant degradation. I think there's some hope with Joe Biden that like, oh, he's, you know, the old school. He's going to bring some of that back to the office. We'll see. Uh, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical, especially the last few days, the way I'm hearing the left talk uh, in response to what happened at the Capitol. So on, on, you know, June 6th, sorry, January 6th, 
Um, it seems like millions. I don't know the number, but um, a huge number of people descended upon Washington, D.C., as is their constitutional right to make their voice heard, to protest. And there's been a lot of rancor around this election and a lot of uh, mistrust and a lot of feeling that, hey, this thing um, was rigged and so on. And I think there's some legitimate concerns. I, you know, I can't prove any of this stuff. I'm, I'm just some schmuck behind a, behind a microphone in upstate New York. But, but I think as a nation, most people look, uh, and if they're intellectually honest, they go, yeah, look, I mean, I don't know that there was widespread fraud, but there are some things that just seem dubious. There's some, some things that seem statistically unlikely to be generous, you know, impossible, you could say, but unlikely. So I, I think most people look at this and go, yeah, some weird things that happened here. So that being said, at the least, as a nation, we should be invested in saying, well, let's look into those things. But a bunch of people came down per Trump's request to say, hey, stop the steal and we're going to you know, make this thing happen and so on. But I think Trump really has to take some responsibility for what happened, not meaning that he brought people down to do what they did to breach the Capitol. But you have to question the wisdom of like, well, I'm going to bring a million people down here that are just wound up. They're not happy with what's going on. And Trump had to know. I mean, you can't tell me that he didn't have conversations with Pence and Pence told him, look, I'm going to do my constitutional duty. You can't tell me that Trump wasn't on the phone talking to some of the key members of Congress and the Senate saying, what are you going to do? By the way, Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz was the guy. You know, you can't tell me that he didn't pull people, get on the phones, figure out like, where's my standing? What's going to happen on this count? Are we going to be able to stop this thing? You can't tell me that he wasn't aware of all the legal efforts that they had that have been that have been quashed state by state. You can't tell me that he wasn't aware that the Supreme Court said we're not interested in dealing with this. You can't tell me going into the sixth that he really thought there was some way that he was going to be coronated. You know, that he knew that this was going to go Biden's way, that those votes were going to get counted. So when you bring all those people down and it's not illegal to bring the people down. And I'm not going to accuse Trump of getting him riled up to go do that in that moment. But, it, but he does, as a leader, have to take some responsibility to say, look, this was a bad judgment call. I should not have had all these people down here. And quite frankly, as a conservative, and I've said a thousand times, Trump is no conservative. He's a populist. But as a conservative and as a Republican, I'm really disappointed because it's cost our movement dearly. Because what happened was not an insurrection. It was not treasonous. I mean, you had a bunch of people, a handful of people wound up. You had a million plus people there. 99.99999% of those people were behaving themselves. They went to hear the Trump, the president. They, they made some noise, as is their right. They got together and a lot of them got on their buses and went home. But there was a small handful. I mean, how many got into the building? 30 a hundred at the most. I mean, this was not like a rampage. This was not a mob. People are like, yeah, but did you see the flag? It's a piece of cloth. It's a piece of cloth. And by the way, my, my buddy who brought up the flag, I'm not picking on you. I've heard this from a number of people. So Mike, if you're listening, this isn't me uh, mocking your statement. Lots of people are concerned about the flag, the, you know, the Confederate flag. Lots of people, oh my God, this is sacred ground. It's not sacred ground. There's nothing sacred in America anymore. The churches have been defrauded. Uh, they've been shut down. They don't have a voice. The, the, the synagogues, anything that really is sacred, the family, marriage, uh, children, I mean, forget it. We, we have desecrated everything that's sacred in this country well before this thing happened. So don't sit and tell me that this was some sacred thing that now has been sullied by the right. 
It's ridiculous. You had this thing happen. It was a small handful of people. There's even video. I've watched it of the Capitol Police or the, you know, whoever they are, opening the doors and letting people in. And this brings me to my point about the QAnon shaman. You watch some of this video and these guys get in. Now, some of them scaled the walls and, and climbed, broke through windows and climbed through windows and so on. Others were just let in and they just kind of poured in. When they were let in, they kind of, you watch the video, they walk in they kind of look around like, golly gee, look where I am. They mill about. They stay within the velvet ropes. You know, some of them run up the stairs. Some are coming down out. Like some are already leaving the building. It's almost like they took the tour. Like, oh, you should make sure to make sure to go check out the uh, chandelier room. It's really amazing. And ask the tour guide. You know, it, it had the sense, the feeling, some of this, of just a bunch of people following each other on a tour. They were let in. They walked around. They made some noise. They took some selfies and they left. Now, there were other people smashing things, barricaded at doors. Then you've got this QAnon shaman who is such a visual character that he's getting a lot of the spotlight. And you've got him down on the Senate floor, the House floor, mugging for, his, for the camera. What's interesting to me, and I think this is where the analogy to the Trump presidency kind of comes in, you had this group of people this really big groundswell. You know, 75 million people voted for Donald Trump. 74, 75 million. What's a million between friends? A massive amount of people voted for Donald Trump. He, he's had amazing support. His base is like rabid for him. They'll, they'll die for him. They're just crazy for Trump. You, and you, you know, even me, like I've got some friends, the fact that I'd say, well, gee, I kind of hold the president accountable. Like he should not have I'm not accusing him of treason. I'm just saying he should have known better. Come on, you brought those people down there. What were you thinking was going to happen? It's like, oh, I was smoking around all this gasoline. I had no, no idea a fire would start. What the hell? I, I didn't. I said, don't start any fires. But there I was smoking a cigarette. It's like, what were you thinking was going to happen? Again, I'm not accusing him of ill intent. I'm just saying bad judgment at, at the least. As a leader, you should know better. And quite frankly, to that point, all along, Trump, I've never heard Trump try to poo-poo any QAnon stuff. He kind of, he's kind of supported that. I, I shouldn't say support it. He hasn't supported it. I just, he's just never come out and said, Hey guys, that's not me. That QAnon, that 4D chest. Yeah. I look, I'm up to, I'm pretty smart and I'm up to some things. You'd be surprised. It's amazing what I'm doing over here, but don't believe that QAnon stuff. Cause QAnon was always like, trust the plan. Just wait, just wait, just wait. You know, people are saying now, well, it's probably a counterintelligence movement. It was like a way to try to keep people from doing anything. And this is where I'm going with this. All these people get into the White House. And the analogy is they get in, or not the White House, I'm sorry, the Capitol building. They get into the House. They're in there. And they're looking around. They don't know what to do. Yeah, some people broke a few things. Some people marauded and jumped around. They don't know what to do. They're in Pelosi's office. One guy's got his feet up on her desk. He's arrested. QAnon shaman, he's arrested. You know, one woman got shot. She was jumping up. So they're trying to smash through a barricaded uh, doorway. She kind of jumped up on the, um, what do you call it, a skylight, the, in the glass in the side of a door. I, she, she didn't have a chance of getting in. It was big wood and glass and everything. But she jumped up, boom, they shot her, dead. She died, you know, not too long after young mother, uh, veteran, uh, I think she was an Air Force veteran. I mean, it's sickening. Uh, I'm not sure why they shot her, uh, but, but okay. I mean, you know, you screw around, you find out. And, um, but for the, for the most part, like even if those people broke through, what were they going to do? Now there's all this talk, oh, well, if they got into the centers, they would have killed them. 
this, this was not a group acting like they're going to kill anybody. They weren't setting fires. They, there was a little bit of physical destruction, not much. Somebody grabbed the podium. They're mugging for the camera. This is a LARP. This is a live action role play, a LARP. These people are LARPing. And why are they LARPing? They're not faking knowingly. They just didn't know what to do with themselves. It's like, we're going to make this right. They're all keyed up. They get down there. They get in. They don't know what to do. There's no military precision. There's no burning desire. There's no fury. There's no focus. There's no hatred. They're just LARPing around, taking photographs. And I think this is indicative of, of an element of Trump's presidency. And I, could, I only see this in hindsight. I've not been saying this all along, but I'm looking now saying, okay, we've just lost the presidency. We've lost the executive branch as Republicans. And it's clear now with the Georgia, the results of the Georgia runoff, we've lost the Senate. We've lost the House. So, so conservatives do not have the executive branch. That happens. We don't have the House. And uh, if you look at the courts, you go, well, you got the Supreme Court. Not really, because the Supreme Court is all about judicial supremacy, meaning if there's something already in the books, if there's precedent, these judges go by the precedent. If they go, well, you know, look, the law's already in the books. It's not our place to undo a decision that was already made. Well, then you're not a conservative. You're just saying, I'm going to go by what the courts decided yesterday. Well, what the courts decided yesterday may be unconstitutional. <laughs> so if you've, got a, if you've got a Supreme Court that's mainly, for the most part, focused on judicial supremacy and precedent, you've got the progressives, really, not just the Democrats, but the progressives controlling the House and the executive branch. My friends, you've lost the government. And this matters for a reason. This matters more so than ever, not because everything hangs in the balance. It does. That's not why I'm saying this. What do we have after Trump? Who, who's the personality? Who's the person that follows up Trump? Now, I have been wondering this all along. I've been saying to myself, this Trump phenomenon is pretty cool. It's great to see people engaged. It's great to see people fight back for their country. I like the idea of nationalism. I think there's some real uh, virtues to nationalism, if done right. Etc. I think Trump's tried to tackle some important things. China's a real problem. I know we don't want to deal with it. I know it's painful. I know it's scary and we'd just rather it go away. But he was trying to deal with China. I give him credit for that, etc. But after him, who's there? Who's the personality? He, he sucks up all the air in the room. There's no room for anyone but Trump. It's all about Trump. And when Trump is gone, which he is now, I know people are holding on. If you hear this before the 20th, you're going to say, Mike, you wait and see. Hey, look, uh, we'll see. I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. Again, this goes back to this whole thing of QAnon. It goes back to the whole Trump phenomenon, which is just wait and see. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is buy the merch. You have to show up at the rallies. But as, as a civic duty, that's all. You've done it. You've done your civic duty. You've consumed the entertainment. That's your civic duty. You went to the rally. You went to the sporting event. You've got the T-shirt. It's like a sports team. I'm a Bills fan. I'm not a Bills fan. I mean, I'm in, I'm in Western New York. I'm rooting for them. I'm not into football that much. I like watching it, but I don't have a team. I used to love the Chargers, I guess. So the Bills and the Chargers. But I'm a soccer guy, so I wear Barcelona crap. I watch the games. I, I yell at the television. I cheer when we win. I wear the, I wear the logo. That's fandom. I've done my job. I've paid the money. I've consumed the entertainment. I'm in. And I feel like that's what the whole Trump phenomenon has been a lot of. And, and, and I'm, I'm not just criticizing that. I'm saying it's come at a cost. 
So we, we've all got excited about the rallies. We love to see Trump own the libs. We've loved to see him, you know, he's funny. Like he's really good. You, you, you watch him at a rally. He is good. He's fun. He's entertaining. He's inspiring. There are things about him. You put all the crassness aside. It's like, he does a good job. There've been times where I've listened to him give speeches like at the UN. So I'm like, wow, that's really presidential. Like he really is setting a tone. He's, he's letting the world know something. But if you take it a little bit further, there's a cost here because we've all consumed the product. And I think the other sides consume the product too. Uh, you know, they've, they've been enraged and so on. So there's this product out there that people are consuming, but for the right, now that Trump is gone, there's a gaping hole. And the problem is we don't have any grassroots organization. We don't have any grassroots infiltration. We, we, we've got no place. We've so focused on being supportive and wound up and rowdy for this guy that we have not activated our grassroots infrastructure. I mean, this is the biggest surge of right-wing enthusiasm in generations, I would say. The Trump phenomenon is quite impressive. I mean, what he's done is amazing, but he never, he and his people never converted that. They never transitioned that. They never translated or transformed that into grassroots activism. And I don't mean like activists, like shake your fist. I mean, hey, I want you guys getting on every possible position you can in your municipality. You should be going for dog catcher, town board, school boards, whatever you can do, you should be getting involved. We're going to revolutionize this country. See, Trump can't do it just from the top. Nobody, nobody can. You have to have that grassroots level support. And I think this is the one thing in, in retrospect, and forgive me for being a Monday morning quarterback, but I'm looking back saying we missed an opportunity here, not to make the country Trumpism, you know, Trump uh, 2.0, but to say as conservatives, as Republicans, as right-wingers or whatever you want to call us, we missed our opportunity to get involved. Could you imagine what the country would look like right now if we were more involved on those levels, if we were on the municipal levels, if we were on the state levels, the, the level, uh, uh, you know, we're on boards for transportation, for commerce, for zoning, all these things, they matter. This is where the real politics happen. And I'm not saying that you should choose one or the other. That's the problem. I think we chose one over the other and it should be both and. I think that this is actually the pathway back for conservatives and Republicans, if they can stomach it. We're going to want, after this hangover, to find the next drink. We're going to want the next guy or gale that can inspire us. We're going to want another hit of dopamine. And if we grow up and if we look in the mirror and say, you know what, I got to stop drinking. This is killing me. I don't want to live like this anymore. It's great, but I'm running away from my problems I'm hung over all the time. It's expensive. And at the end, I'm, I'm actually further behind than, than I was when I started. If we can do that, if we can look in the mirror, and I'm not, this is not about Trump. This is just us wanting someone to save us. If we could stop thinking that way, like a bunch of children, and look at the world around us and go, how can I get engaged? And this is the thing about conservatives. They are the, sometimes uh, the folks I know, they're the most hardest working, honest people. They're hardworking people. They, they live by values. They care about deeper things. I'm not saying that liberals don't, I, it, but I'm just saying they tend not to be as hedonistic. They tend not to be uh, as power hungry. And maybe that's part of the problem, but we've got to be willing to roll up our sleeves and get involved on a grassroots level and rebuild 
this movement, not the Trump movement, but conservatism and this idea of, you know, making America great again, whether that includes the Trump or not, uh, I'm happy to move on from the Trumps. This for me isn't about Trump. This is about what does this country stand for? What could it be? Where is it going now? And so when I look at this image and when I watch the video of QAnon shaman and uh, some of these other folks just running around kind of LARPing and taking selfies, I think that reveals a flaw in the, in the current status of our movement because they got in there and they didn't even know what they were supposed to do. They're aimless. They've not been activated. They're not focused on getting work done. They're just participating in an experience. And without good direction and guidance, they didn't know what to do next. And I think that we as Republicans, if you look back historically, what does Republicanism mean? It means civic duty. It means rigor. It means aggressive public debate. It means taking on responsibility, sacrifice, growth through struggle. Democracy, on the other hand, means pleasure. It means consumption. It means, you know, you throw your vote out there and somebody else will take care of it for you. That's the, those are the two warring ideas right now. And I think Republicanism is losing and has been losing, even under Trump. I think Republicanism, I think the Republican Party won for a while under him. But we're going to look now and say, at what cost? This last thing, this, this breaching of the, of the Capitol, it's going to cost us dearly. The left is going to make us pay for this without remorse. They're going to drive it home. This is an opportunity for them, and they know it. They're going to try to make us pay. We've got to fight back, but my, my advice to you listening, if you care about this kind of thing, is we have to fight back on a local level first. The national politics are going to take care of themselves. The Republican Party is going to go through its process, lick its wounds. It might fracture. There might be other parties, et cetera, et cetera. We need to get involved on a local level and make a difference there and build from the bottom up. I think if you build from the bottom up, you've got a fantastic foundation. And I think that's what this belies or betrays, that there, there wasn't the foundation seemingly. I mean, look, it's early, but it seems like there wasn't the foundation necessary to sustain this thing, to hold it up. And I'll close it, uh, this podcast out just with a thought on this idea of unity that we've been hearing from the left. You know, the other thing that this um, breaching of the Capitol <laughs> shows us is that this idea, this message of unity that it's time to now unify is a bunch of bullshit. It's bullshit. It's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. It always was. You know, I'm seeing people on social media. I'm getting it in my inbox. Uh, you know, now finally we can start to heal. Now finally we can start to unify. Really? Why didn't you want to unify four years ago? So your guy, your gal uh, didn't win. And, and who sowed the seeds of discord? Who sowed the seeds of ripping the country apart? Who screamed bloody murder for years? Who was burning down the cities? Who was protesting throughout all this? It, it wasn't the right. They weren't chasing you down in the streets. They weren't murdering you in the streets. They weren't dragging you out of your houses. It wasn't the right. It wasn't the Trump supporters that were badgering you, doxing you, you know, yelling outside your house. It wasn't, it wasn't right wing or conservative congressman saying, find those people in the restaurants, if, you know, make a scene, chase them out, you know, don't give them any quarter Maxine Waters. It wasn't the right doing that. It was the left. This is the classic progressive trick. Create a problem. When the problem becomes very painful, come to everybody and go, oh my God, this problem's terrible. We can fix it. Let us do it for you. 
<laughs> Who creates the racist issues? It's the Democrats, not the Republicans. Look at your history, kids. Look at your history. If you have the courage, look at the history. Who were the slave owners? It was the Southern Democrats. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Who set the slaves free? Well, funny enough, it was the Republicans. You, you would never know that, though, the way people behave. Who is it that rips families apart? Uh, who is it that, you know, supports things like divorce and abortion and all these things that are actually bad for society? They, they hurt people. You know, like when a woman has an abortion, it hurts her. This isn't like, well, it's just a medical procedure. It's like, no, there's, there's emotional, psychological, and physiological damage done to her long term. That's, it's a brutal thing. And to tell somebody any, anything else is, is, is immoral because you're, you're tricking them into doing something that's terrible for them. So, so it's always the left that creates these policies that are just destructive and then later goes, oh, you shouldn't be miserable like this. It's not fair. Look at those right-wing bastards, what they did to you. Let us fix it for you. So, you know, the last four years have been a hell for everybody. Well, why is that? It's because the media and the left, everybody's been screaming like a bunch of bloody idiots about this thing. They haven't wanted to unify. They're beating people in the streets if they've got a MAGA hat on. Oh my gosh. And now they're going to tell us it's time to unify. Well, it's obviously hypocritical because, you know, a handful of knuckleheads, total knuckleheads, and they should be, look, they should be held accountable. They should totally be held accountable. The people that got into the Capitol building, that was immoral and wrong. It was just, it's illegal. It was stupid. What the hell are you guys thinking? But to sit and, 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 you know, paint half the country with a brush of like, you're horrible people because you're part of this. You're, it's your fault. Uh, guys, this is this is becoming like the kangaroo courts of the early Bolshevik revolution. I mean, give me a break. So don't out of one side of your mouth tell me about unity and then the other side of your mouth just stomp somebody into the mud because you don't agree with their position. That's just bullshit, kids. I think my listeners are smart enough to know this. And I've got people that listen that are on the left. I've got people that listen on the right all over the board. I want to believe that you're intellectually honest enough to reject this kind of bullshit. We have to reject it. Thinking people, honest people, people of character and of substance have to reject this. If you want to be able to look yourself in the mirror, then you have to be willing to put aside this Machiavellian BS and tell the truth. If you want to be heroic, you have to be living to, you have to be willing to live the truth without fear of consequence. And if you're on the left right now, it's time for you to speak up and say, hey, Let's knock it off. Let's put this all behind us. We have to take responsibility for what we did. And we have to let these people, our neighbors, let them alone. They made a choice. They didn't do anything wrong. They pulled a lever in a voting booth. So let's stop this kind of stuff. I don't know any conservatives that were talking about wanting to hunt down liberals because of what they believe. Yeah, there's some wackadoos. But like, we're not hearing from wackadoos. We're hearing from blue check Twitter people. These are high level journalists, executives. We're hearing from big politicians, big politicians with big platforms. We're talking about federal, national level politicians saying horrible things about conservatives. You don't own the country. You don't, you don't vote to see who gets to own the country. You get voted in to govern. But I think most Americans prefer that you govern from the middle, from the center. We're not asking you to take us off the cliff. Fair enough. Maybe you feel that Trump took us too far right. Fair enough. All right. He didn't win. Voter fraud and all that stuff aside, he didn't win. According to the courts and everything else, he didn't make it. Now, I, I don't believe that the courts are being honest. I think there's a lot of chicanery going on here. 
I'd like to see that fixed, but that's not what this is about. At this stage in the game, legally, technically, he doesn't have it. Until we can prove otherwise, he doesn't have it. So let's move on. I'm saying that as a right-wing guy. Let's move on. I'm not saying it because I'm worried about, oh, no, 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 let's move on. Forget it, forget it, everything. No, I'm saying I think you guys are full of crap on the left, but I'm willing to give you the win and move on and try to fix it for the next time. My concern is what happened at the Capitol, and, and they were just waiting for an opportunity, an excuse. My concern is that the right will never be able to get control again in living in my time. I just think that, I, I just think that the left got a scare. I think Trump scared the heck out of them and they're never going to let go of it again. So this idea of unity, as you hear this message of unity, you know, do yourself a favor. If you, if you want to live heroically, if you want to embrace the truth, you know, look at that, those calls for unity in the context that they are offered. Now there are some people that are saying unify, unify that they've always been saying that and fair enough. God bless those people. Thank you. But there are other people that are calling for unity right now because they won. They don't want to be held accountable. They don't want anybody looking into anything. Let's just move on. Now, I'm saying Trump's not going to be inaugurated on the 20th or whatever the date is. But I'm not saying we should just move on. I think we need to look into how do we ensure the institution of the American voting system so that Americans on both the left, right, and every other persuasion can feel confident that their vote matters. And secondly, what can the Republican Party do to rebuild after what happened. I think this is an epic loss for us. E even if Trump technically won, I think what happened uh, on the 6th is a huge loss for us morally. It's a moral loss. And I think our leader led us into that. And I'm, I hate to even say it because I know I'm going to get a lot of criticism and hate from people, but it's the truth. I feel like Trump fell short. That doesn't, that doesn't uh, delegitimize everything he did. That doesn't throw all his four years out the window. I hope that history can look at him through a, a less, um, I, I guess, a, a, a more objective lens and, and judge him based on the merits of his presidency. But I think the moment we're living in right now, we've lost something really important and uh, it, it's going to cost us dearly for time to come. That said, I'm still pretty upbeat. I'm still excited about 2021. I'm grateful. I'm humbled by how good life is and I'm grateful for the people around me that I love, that love me. I'm grateful for the work that I get to do. And folks, you know what? I'm grateful for you too. I love you guys. Thanks for joining me today for this episode of The Currency. Make sure to tell your friends. I want to grow this thing, kids. I got to beat I gotta beat the Duchess and the, the Duke of, um, of Sussex. I mean, they're nipping at my heels with this thing they've come out with. So help me out. Share this podcast with your friends. Tell your friends about it. And uh, make sure to tell them that Mike Gaston sent you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love you guys. I hope you have a great week and I'll catch you in the next episode.